Blog Talk Radio.
que le jour paraît, tout le charme s'envole. Nameka ki mama nakanisa kiteyo koko sangai diyo Siko yonga na monie Nokelobi balobi nagaye Nalingina yeba badalelo yo ozalise vanga motema Pona lingiteo Bapa kola Ngai bozo bao
Tu comprends français Moi, pas connais français. Tu reconnais Oye bilingala Moi, t'es pas. Yébite lingala t'es. Allez, viens, on va prendre un verre, allez. Moi, bois pas. Tu bois beaucoup <rire> Ah, ah, allez, pose Moi, comprends pas français. Ah, ah, pas Moi, comprends pas français.
kono makina ya kosale paina yo na sala kimo sala na malamo soka ya sanza ukapiga ibaka na sala kiko teka nanga sikala yo na sanzo kongolo seba sapato na sanzo kolo vina nana tika natika mani makiyo na malamo
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pat African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, May 22nd, uh, 2022. We just heard the music of uh, the PPOK Jazz Orchestra uh, from the early 1960s, a collection of uh, various tunes, uh, recordings, and uh, this is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current uh, conflict in Eastern Europe. NATO's expansion uh, will lead to growing tension and in no way will help ensure the security of its members. That's according to Stanislav Zoth, who is the Secretary General of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO, a post-Soviet Russia-led security bloc. Uh, he said this earlier today. Naturally, we are considering this extension as a breeding ground for the aggravation of tension and further militarization of the region. As a matter of fact, it will not help enhance security including uh, of the NATO member states. Uh, he said this in an interview with the Belarus One television channel. According to Zas, the CSTO is capable of adequately responding to NATO's possible expansion. Should we reinforce our potential in this situation, we have enough forces to respond to possible threats that may emerge in this situation. The issue of enhancing the potential task is not uh, on the agenda now, he said. Now, the CSTO is an accomplished international organization and a quite effective one. It means that it is not merely a military political bloc, but it is also a multifunctional organization uh, which offers protection against other threats. And what is also very important, uh, we have created strong mechanisms and a legal basis. We have forces and means and a crisis response system. Today, the CSTO has all of the possibilities to serve as a security guarantor for our countries. He stressed, and I think we are really a good shield uh, for our six countries. In other news, in the Horn of Africa, with a view to easing the unwarranted pressure in their home country, Ethiopian diasporas uh, in the U.S. will make informed decisions in the November's midterm elections to punish pro-TPLF lawmakers, the renowned Ethiopian-American artist said, speaking to the Ethiopian Press Association, uh, the artist uh, Tesfaye Sima uh, noted that the Ethiopian-American community will cast their voice in a manner to change the position of the U.S. politicians and government in the favor of the people and government of Ethiopia. The Ethiopian-American community needs to exhibit grievance over U.S. conspiracies against their country via protesting against the unlawful draft bills of House Resolution 6600 and Senate Bill 3199. The community has already started coordinating campaigns against the bills, thereby lessening their pressure. The diaspora community uh, has been 
informing members of the U.S. governmental bodies, senators and human rights activists and others about the reality on the ground in Ethiopia during the election campaign, he indicated. The diaspora community has been strongly protesting the bills as they harm the lower segments of the society. The campaign has been undertaken so far to oppose the two bills deliberately formulated against Ethiopia's transformation and its people's well-being. As to testify, and the voice uh, will have significant impact on shaping the distorted attitudes about Ethiopia. The diaspora community needs to actively participate in the election and contribute their part in protesting against the bill and the unwarranted states. Government is waging a hybrid war on Ethiopia under the guise of ensuring peace and stability, but running uh, for restoring the old ruling party, the TPLF, a designated terrorist faction by the Ethiopian parliament. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in other news, uh, a protester was killed in Abdurman, a Khartoum twin city, on Saturday as the security forces opened fire to disperse an anti-coup demonstration. The 20-year-old protester was killed by a cartridge weapon the security forces used against the protesters near the house of the former Prime Minister Ishmael al-Azhari in Abdurman. The Sudanese security forces did not issue a statement to explain the excessive use of violence or its circumstances. The Central Committee of the Sudanese Doctors uh, said that Mohammed Khalis uh, died of a shot, probably with a cartridge weapon, after indicating that the pellets of the shotgun spread in his chest. The security forces also besieged the protesters to prevent them from reaching the hospital, the CCSD underscored. In total, 96 people have been killed by security forces after the coup d'etat of General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. That took place on October the 25th of last year. Military rulers pledged to end violence and to implement a number of confidence-building measures ahead of a dialogue process facilitated by the United Nations, the African Union, and the Intergovernmental Authority on Development. Several police political forces condemned the murder of the protesters. The National Uma Party, in a statement uh, condemned the use of excessive force against protesters, mentioned the mistreatment of political prisoners who are arbitrarily detained by the security forces. While the Unionist Alliance, for its part, called to take uh, to the streets to break the siege on uh, the protesters in Abdurman's neighborhoods. In response to Khalid's death, Hundreds took to the streets in Abdurman and Khartoum to protest the violence by the security forces against the demonstrators. The resistance committees in Khartoum City yesterday called to escalate the anti-coup protest and to protest in the 60th Street in Khartoum. And finally, in Britain, uh, it is seeing daily infections of the rare monkeypox virus that are unconnected to any travel to West Africa where the disease is endemic. That's according to a health official earlier today. The United Kingdom Health Security Agency said new figures would be released on Monday after it registered 20 cases on Friday. Asked if community transmission was now the norm in Britain, UKHSA Chief Medical Advisor Susan Hopkins said absolutely. We are finding cases that have no identified contact with an individual from West Africa 
which is what we've seen previously in this country, as she told the BBC television. We are detecting more cases on a daily basis. Hopkins declined to confirm reports that one individual was in, in intensive care but said the outbreak was concentrated in urban areas among gay and bisexual men. The risk of the general population remains extremely low at the moment, and I think people need to be alert to it, she said, adding that for most adults, symptoms would be relatively mild. The first UK case was announced on May 7th in a patient who had recently traveled to Nigeria. The disease is also spreading in Europe and North America. Monkeypox can be transmitted through contact with skin lesions and droplets of a contaminated person, as well as shared items such as beddings and towels. Symptoms include fever, muscle aches, swollen left nose, chills, exhaustion, and a chicken pox-like rash on the hands and face. They usually clear up after two to four weeks. There's no specific treatment, but vaccination against smallpox has been found to be about 85% effective in preventing uh, monkeypox. Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi said the United Kingdom government had already started buying up stocks of smallpox vaccines. We're taking it very, very seriously, he told the BBC. Uh, With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is the International Electronic Press Service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, May 22nd, Sunday, uh, 2022, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that is at blog is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, May 22nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was music uh, from Rotary Connection, uh, the tune entitled Life Could, uh, Rotary Connection featuring uh, Manny Ripperton and Sidney Barnes on lead vocals. And uh, right now we want to move into a new segment uh, dealing with the sanctions that have been imposed on uh, the Russian Federation and the impact of these sanctions on the Russian Federation, whether or not they're effective and uh, whether or not they are carrying out the stated objectives of the United States. Uh, These uh, talking points that are enunciated on a daily basis to media audiences uh, in the United States as well as Europe. Let's listen in. How is Russia's economy performing under Western sanctions? The US, EU, and their allies imposed unprecedented measures as punishment for invading Ukraine. But Moscow says the country is weathering the storm. So what's the real picture? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Hashem Ahalbarra. Western nations imposed some of their strongest ever sanctions on Russia as punishment for invading Ukraine. They include freezing the central bank's foreign reserves, banning oil and gas imports, and suspending Russia's banks from global financial systems. The measures were meant to cripple its economy. But the Russian ruble is trading a two-year high against the U.S. dollar. Researchers in Finland found revenues from energy sales to the EU have nearly doubled since February when the war began. And the American investment bank, J.P. Morgan, says Russia's economy is performing better than expected. Still, the International Monetary Fund expects the economy to shrink by 8.5% this year. Russia's ability to limit the initial shock of sanctions has frustrated Western leaders. So how has it weathered the storm? Russia doubled interest rates to 20% when sanctions hit to help increase demand for the ruble. Capital controls were imposed. Businesses had to convert 80% of foreign currency revenues to rubles. Remittances abroad were strictly limited. Most significantly, Russia has had a steady flow of foreign currency from its vast oil and gas exports. A jump in global prices offsets some of its losses in export and production. All that has seen the ruble not only recover, but achieve a higher value than before the sanctions. Russia's president says Europe is committing economic suicide with its sanctions. The rejection of Russian energy resources means that systematically, in a long-term perspective, Europe will become the region with the highest cost of energy resources in the world. And now, frankly speaking, as the result of the chaotic actions of our partners, in addition to the damage to the European economy itself, we are actually having an increase in the revenue of the Russian oil and gas sector. And McDonald's is the latest Western company to pull out of Russia. 
One of the world's most recognizable symbols of capitalism opened its first restaurant 32 years ago as the Soviet Union collapsed. It's now selling all its outlets to a local business. Let's bring in our guests from Moscow, Vyacheslav Mishenko, an energy market and oil gas expert. In Tashkent, Chris Weaver, Chief Executive Officer at the Consultancy Macro Advisory, and in Paris, Eric Shani, an economic advisor to Institute Montaigne, a think tank dedicated to public policy in France and Europe. Vyacheslav, how do you explain Russia's resilient economy despite the string of unprecedented Western sanctions? Yeah, as you mentioned in your coverage, actually, it's better, much better than expected. So I, I would like to stress that Russian oil and gas still flow uh, abroad. So still, despite all the conversations about it, implementing some strong measures and uh, helping stopping uh, the exports actually goes. And despite the fact the dependence on uh, Russian gas supply in Europe is very high. So it's over... So Russian market share in Europe is over 30%, and even now just about 40%. In some countries, uh, like Central Eastern Europe, it's more than 80% dependence. It's the gas balance covered by Russian gas. So it means that it's not easy, actually, to break um, on uh, just stop flowing and stop buying and stop having some trading relationship. So And, and despite the fact all this pressure, all this political, um, uh, you know, just political uh, dispute, it gives, uh, you know, more uh, the, to the market. It's, it's very nervous about the, uh, you know, stopping and about the uh, okay. just, you know, not okay. having Russian supply. And it, it pressures on, this, on the prices. And prices give uh, very high profits to Russian oil export and gas export companies. Chris, the economists were somehow earlier predicting the GDP of Russia to contract by 15%. That does not seem to be the case now. Is it because of exactly as Vyacheslav was saying, the high revenues when it comes to oil and gas exports that helped cushion against uh, a collapse of the economy? Uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that, <clears throat> that is the reason. You have to look at the Russian story in two parts. There's the financial side and there's the economic side. So as Lex has said, the financial side has remained very strong because well, we see continuing high prices for, for commodities, oil and gas, and Russia is continuing to export almost at maximum at this stage. Uh, the sanctions have not yet slowed it down. So in the first four months of this year, the country ran a trade surplus of $107 billion a current account surplus of close to $100 billion. And that money, of course, is all coming back to, uh, to Russia. But on the economic side, we can see deterioration. Uh, the economy ministry, the finance ministry are all warning that there will be a big downturn in the economy uh, in now in Q2, and, and particularly they believe the worst will come in Q3. Uh, we already hear from companies that they are running short of components, uh, they can't import uh, products. So companies are starting to warn about short-term working, uh, if, if not even having to close, shut down. So we will see a rise in unemployment. Uh, we have seen a drop in, in incomes, uh, and that's affecting consumption. So we are still seeing 
this deterioration in the economy, uh, even though the balance sheet, if you like, is very strong. But, uh, but right now, it looks like the deterioration is going to be significantly mm-hmm. less than has been feared. The economy ministry this week said they expect GDP to contract this year by only about 7.5 to 8%, not 15. Mm-hmm. And that's because the government can afford to continue paying for subsidies. Eric, the central bank, since the start of the crisis, man- managed somehow to fend off an economic collapse by increasing the interest rate, limiting the, uh, the, the remittances. Can it continue doing that if the sanctions continue for a longer period? You're right. The decisions taken by Elvira Nabulina, the head of the Russian Central Bank, and she's very good in her job, uh, was a very tough decision to raise interest rates to 20%. But I think the, the, the goal of this uh, tough decision was to help to keep the currency afloat. You might remember that uh, the rubble uh, in the first stage went down quite sharply, and that's why the central bank raised uh, rates to 20%. But of course, uh, there will be huge consequences for the economy. Uh, the Russian economy is sensitive to interest rates and to inflation as far as incomes are concerned. And uh, uh, it seems that for Russian companies that cannot borrow from abroad because they are excluded, totally excluded from the Western financial system at least, uh, they can find a lot of... Uh, of money from the central bank, but at 20%, given they are indebted at variable rates, there will be casualties on the corporate side. Mm-hmm. So this monetary policy was, I think, quite smart. And it has helped, that was not the only element, it has helped to keep the rubble where it is, which mm-hmm. is a great success. And I don't think that was expected. But the consequences for the real economy are deeply negative because you cannot have a your cake and eat it. Vyacheslav, the, the Russians had the, the, their own assets abroad. They could tap into those assets to pay for, 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 for that. Now, the, um, the U.S. Treasury is saying that it will not allow the Russians by the end of this month to further use the financial system to pay uh, for the debt. What is likely to mean for the Russian economy? And actually, it's called technical default, uh, but it doesn't mean that Russia and Russian authorities, I mean, financial authority can't pay. They can pay, and they're ready to pay, but, you know, this is uh, in the political, uh, actually, angle. From the political angle, this is kind of dispute, but uh, technically it's possible. But, you know, it depends on, on the positions of the parties. I would like to stress again, I would like to add that, uh, so the Russian market, in general, the, yeah, I, I agree. I would agree with the, with Claude mind that uh, there is a uh, implement, implementation of a financial plan. It goes well, but economical, you know, side probably we will see some decrease of the economy, as you mentioned, but not to the eight percent. It's up to the five percent, which is the latest calculation actually for the year. But again, the revenues are huge, and revenues are very strong from the export activities. It's not. It's not only oil. It's just all the raw materials and, you know, the, the, the market sector, Russia exports. And by the way, Russia is seeking for the new markets. And the, the, you know, interesting information that India has become the number one uh, buyer of Russian crude for the last two months. So it's actually tripled, even just for the short period of time, the, the, uh, the purchase 
of Russian uh, uh, materials, actually, especially oil. Mm-hmm. That's a very significant uh, deal, actually, for Russia finding new markets. Chris, the European market has always been crucial for the Russian economy. But what happens next when the Europeans decide it's about time to finally turn their back on the Russian gas and oil? Okay, first of all, for sure it'll be, it'll be damaging, but it's important to bear in mind that Russia has been dealing with sanctions since 2014. And back in 2014, Europe was concerned about dependency on Russian energy imports, but Moscow also started to get concerned about the fact that it was, it was also very dependent on Europe as the buyer of its energy. And actually, over the last eight years, Russia has made uh, a lot of progress uh, uh, much more than Europe, in diversifying its uh, customer base. So, for example, right now, uh, it, uh, China is the biggest trade partner of Russia, whereas pre-2014, it was Germany. Uh, so, therefore, the, the system, to some extent, has been diversified. Russia mm-hmm. is no longer as vulnerable to Europe as it used to be. Uh, and as a previous speaker said, uh, Russia has now been very proactive, even in the last few months, in, uh, in looking for, for new markets, uh, India, as you mentioned, is certainly one that has emerged strongly as a, as a potential buyer. And even if Russia is offering its oil and gas at a discount, bearing in mind that prices are now significantly higher than they have been over the last few years, this is why Russia is now earning a significant amount of money, a trade surplus of $107 billion, say, in the first four months of this year. And, and it's running at about 25 to $30 billion a month right now. That gives Russia mm-hmm. a significant amount of financial resources to subsidize the economy and to start, uh, if you like, readjusting the economy for, for long-term sanctions if it needs to. Eric, is Europe ready for the day when they will phase out Russian energy and supplies, or is it just an issue of political leverage they are using now, and they seem to be not really genuine about severing economic ties with Russia? Well, I I do think that it's uh, more a question of when than a question of if. I think the the political shock in Western Europe, but especially in Germany, because the the whole energy policy of Germany is based on uh, Russian gas, if you want. It's not only for uh, the production of electricity, it's also for the German industry, which says it's thanks to the Russian gas that we are competitive. That was true. And now everybody has understood that Russia is not a reliable supplier of uh, hydrocarbons, of fossil fuels. The Soviet Union was reliable. Russia is not. When uh, Mr. Putin decides to cut supply, uh, he cuts supply. So I think it's going to happen, but slowly, because Germany made enormous mistakes in its own energy policy by putting its eggs, all its eggs in the Russian uh, pipelines, uh, if you want. But the decision, the political decision is taken, and there is no way I think Europe will shy away from cutting all imports of energy from Russia. Ideally, that should be done immediately, and that is possible. Uh, But there is a very strong political resistance from the German industry and from uh, the German socialists to do that. Mm -hmm. So that will take time. Okay. But I think in one year time, Europe 
will have cut its supplies from Russia. We have started to diversify its supplies from other gas suppliers. As far as oil is concerned, it's not a problem because oil is a global market. Gas is much more complicated. And a lot of countries in Europe have decided to relaunch uh, their nuclear plants, with, with uh, the exception of Germany, of course. So for all these reasons, I think that Europe will be able to get rid of Russian supplies. I see so your point. It's going to take more Vyacheslav, when you yeah. look at the economy now and you see the indicators, prices are soaring, inflation is likely to hit 20%, unemployment is on the rise. Could this be the real indication that there is something wrong with the economy now in Russia? You know, the things are mo- have been moving so fast. We can't rely on this, you know, just... just the current numbers, actually. Let me just argue one, one thing I would mm-hmm. like to say about a reliable uh, supplier. Actually, we, we shouldn't lose the, the, the chain, the logic chain, actually. So nobody cuts supplies, actually. So the, the Russian state reserves, financial reserves, were frozen and seized, actually. And then it has become very uh, hard, actually, to supply the commodities, actually, to European markets in in the currency, in euro and in dollars, actually, that the scheme was actually offered to the European buyers actually to put the euros on the special accounts and to convert them into rubles. That's the core issue, actually. Nobody stopped and nobody cut the supply, actually, so it still goes there. So, I mean, uh, back to the numbers. I think we will see some recovering, um, even now with whether just, you know, just the prices, just you know, uh, just in regular, you know, the Russian stores and food stores and everything are going better. So they're going back uh, from the shop they used to have in, in the end of February and, and then beginning of March. So it was a kind of uh, emotional reaction uh, to the events and, you know, to the uh, political situation. But now it's back to normal. And the ruble is strong, just not because of the regulation, but because of the huge I know, disproportional you know, of, of uh, trade balance because Russia exports much more than inputs mm-hmm. now because of the restrictions. And that pushes ruble to the level we see since um, 2018, probably. All right. Um, Chris, since you started your conversation with us, uh, saying that it's about time to look at the financial aspect from one, on one hand and the economy on the other hand. When you see the economy with experts saying that you're likely to see 2 million Russians lose their job this year. This year, Couldn't this be the indication that there's going to be a serious structural problem with the Russian economy from now onwards? Oh, I think there's no doubt the economy is facing structural change. It's clearly, there are, there are so many scenarios you could talk about, uh, whether you want to be optimistic or pessimistic a lot of which will depend on what happens to commodity prices and therefore the government's uh, cash flow, what happens with sanctions, what happens uh, basically on so many aspects which will have, have, have an input. But the fact that there will be a structural change in the economy is without doubt. Uh, Russia is going to have to become a lot more diversified uh, in its trade and sourcing of materials. It's going to have to find ways to create new, new areas of employment in the future, and, and that transition is going to be painful. How painful will depend on how much money the government has in the budget to provide subsidies uh, and, and to pay for, 
with this. And that then critically, of course, is linked to uh, how much commodities that exports and what the price of those commodities will be. So it's too early to say yet as to whether or not there's going to mm-hmm. be 2 million people unemployed or 1 million. Uh, we do note that the government is very, very focused on job preservation. We saw this week, for example, the announcement from Moreno that it is selling its business to a local buyer and McDonald's, which employs 62,000 people in Russia, has also sold to a, a local buyer. And we know that the government is providing subsidies involved in these transactions because it is, it is absolutely focused on job preservations. And, and as we started the conversation to say they can afford to do that mm-hmm. in the current situation, the question is how long will that cash flow remain sufficiently large that they will be able to cushion the economy from the more pessimistic scenarios? That's an enormous question mark. Eric, the West started the sanctions to send a clear political message to the Russian government that they will not tolerate what is happening in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. But the sanctions themselves are triggering a global economic crisis with the soaring prices, particularly when it comes to food and energy. Could this backfire in a way or another, raising international discontent over what is happening? Well, that's a very important question, but I I would put it slightly differently. Um, It's not only the sanctions. The sanctions are, are having a deep impact on the Russian economy. They also have an impact on energy prices, as you said. Uh, But the fact, for instance, that food prices are rising are absolutely not linked to sanctions. They are caused by the fact that the Russian Navy is blocking Ukrainian exports of wheat. Mm -hmm. So it's the war decided by Russia that is causing this soaring uh, energy and food prices. And I'm afraid that as far as food prices are concerned, the consequences might be very dire for a lot of countries. Uh, think of Egypt, for instance, where the population is really already on very low incomes and uh, very, very quick to go to social and political unrest. So we are going to see a lot of consequences. Could that backfire on the sanctions themselves? I don't think so. There is a huge debate in Germany again about what would happen if Germany cut its uh, supplies of uh, natural gas from Russia. So that will be done progressively. Uh, And I think that we are going to have a recession Mm -hmm. due to uh, this this big shock. There is less energy and food supply, but there are also higher prices. So when you put that together, that is one of the reasons of stagflation. Mm -hmm. Okay, but this is going to prove temporary. And that's why I don't think it will lead to, uh, you know, second thoughts about the sanctions. I would even go so far as saying that the sanctions so far have been relatively light. Gazprom Bank is not sanctioned. Sberbank Bank is not sanctioned. So Germany has obtained that uh, it would still be possible for Russia to export its oil and gas in Europe. So we are going to have more sanctions, not less. Okay, Vyacheslav, very briefly, if you don't mind. Now, Russia has been working for quite some time on two key assets. One reasserting itself as a trusted supplier of energy to a key player in the global market. On the two aspects, it is suffering now because it's now being more and more isolated from the global financial market. And number two, it's not really widely seen, particularly in Europe, as someone we can trust when it comes to the supply of gas and energy. Could this 
be the main setback facing the Russian economy in the future? Um, I don't think so. I think we are on the edge of, of uh, global changing, uh, a change in the markets, uh, actually, the, the scheme of the markets. And uh, so I, I mean, Russian commodities and Russian exports will be, will be looking for, for the new markets and for the, for the markets. With the, so it, it's not a secret that the, the key demand is being formed in the South East Asia and the countries like Africa, as you mentioned, and not only on the energy, but on the food as well. So you, uh, my colleague just mentioned wheat. Yes, there will be some, some troubles actually exporting wheat. And actually Russia implemented some, some export ban uh, for, for, some, for some period of time because Russia is the largest and, uh, exporter of, of wheat in the world. So, I mean, but still, so demand is there and the population of global population is, is growing. So, I mean, uh, so despite the financial troubles and the uh, sanctions, I think sanctions is, uh, is a dead end. So, they, they, at, at the end of the day, they actually uh, harm all the global trade and, and, and relationship, I mean, economical, Thank you. Uh, on from the economical side. It's, it's not just the solution, actually. I think they will be finding new ways and new platforms, like, like uh, you know, just new uh, new technologies actually will be supporting the, the, the experts and Gentlemen. not the financial teams. Gentlemen, we have to leave it there. Yashislav Mishenko, Chris with uh, Eric Shani. I really appreciate your insight. Thank you. And thank you too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com, for further discussion. Go to our Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash AGA Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AGA Inside Story from Mihasha Mahalbala and the entire team here in Doha. Bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was a uh, news report on uh, the actual lack of impact uh, of uh, U.S. and European Union sanctions against the Russian Federation, that uh, they had over $100 billion in trade surplus uh, during the first of uh, this year. And, of course, uh, the special military operation began on uh, February the 24th. And, of course, the ruble uh, since that time after initial decline has uh, recovered uh, even higher uh, than it was uh, prior to uh, February the 24th. And uh, this is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, right now we'll take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Another new segment uh, on uh, the situation in Burkina Faso, Tunisia, and Mozambique uh, related to uh, political developments, uh, migrant workers, as well as uh, infectious disease. Uh, Let's listen in uh, to this report. Coming up on Network Africa. Burkina Faso loses 11 soldiers in an army base attack. At least four migrants drowned, 10 others missing off the coast of Tunisia. Plus, Mozambique detects its first case of polio in decades. Welcome to the program. I'm Layo Olaride. We begin with updates of attack in Burkina Faso, where the military says it has lost 11 soldiers during a strike on its base in Majauri in the eastern region of the country. A statement by the Armed Forces Communications Unit says at least 20 others were wounded by shrapnel or projectiles and are currently receiving medical treatment. In the meantime, no group has admitted responsibility for carrying out the attack. Burkina Faso's army says its military air support killed at least 15 militants who were attempting to escape after the attack. It's also urging all the units to maintain a spirit of combat readiness to defeat what it terms as the enemy. Burkina Faso has been battling an Islamist insurgency in the north since 2015. The UK Home Office says legal challenges against its plan to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda have not delayed the scheme, but some British media outlets are quoting campaigners as saying they received notice on Wednesday evening that the Rwanda flights will now not take place until at least after June the 6th. A Home Office spokesperson is said to have uh, said the first flights are expected to take place in the coming months and legal action has not yet had any impact on this. 
Prime Minister Boris Johnson had last week told the Daily Mail newspaper that he hoped the first flights would happen within a fortnight. More people have been notified that they could be sent to Rwanda. Under the £120 million scheme, people deemed to have entered the UK unlawfully will be transported to the East African country where they will be allowed to apply for the right to settle. Staying with Rwanda, the U.S. State Department says it has determined that Paul Rusesa Bagina, the subject of an Oscar-nominated film Hotel Rwanda, was wrongfully detained. Mr. Rusesa Bagina was sentenced to 25 years for terrorism by a Rwandan court last year in what his supporters call a sham trial. He is credited with saving some 1,200 people during the 1994 genocide and his actions in inspired the film Hotel Rwanda. His family says that it hoped that the new designation would bring increased pressure for Rwanda to set him free. In a statement, they said that the 67-year-old the 67-year-old's health is deteriorating and they fear that he would die in prison, especially if something is not done by the United States and others to free him. Last month, the family filed a $400 million lawsuit in the United States over his alleged abduction and torture. In North Africa, at least four migrants have drowned and another ten are missing after their boats sank off the coast of Tunisia. The Tunisian Coast Guard said they were attempting to cross the Mediterranean into Italy. The boat, which left from the coast of Saks, with more than 50 migrants on board, all of Tunisian nationality, sank off the coast of this port city. That's according to a spokesperson for the National Guard. In the meantime, the Coast Guard says it managed to rescue 44 people from the overcrowded boat. The city of Sfax is one of the main departure points for Tunisian and foreign migrants, particularly from sub-Saharan Africa to the Italian coast. The rate of illegal departures now is likely to increase uh, as the summer approaches. Still in Tunisia, thousands of Jewish pilgrims have gathered on the Tunisian island of Jebra to visit one of Africa's oldest synagogues in an annual pilgrimage following a two-year suspension due to COVID-19. Pilgrims usually travel each May to Giriva Synagogue on the island in the south to mark a holiday which follows Passover. The pilgrimage has been taking place for 20 years and in the past have attracted visitors from Israel, France and the United States. Mainly Muslim Tunisians has one of the largest Jewish Many, mainly Muslim Tunisians has one of the largest uh, Jewish communities in North Africa, about 2,000 people, and half of them live in Jeba, close to the Libyan border. In Sudan, tear gas filled the streets of the capital Khartoum as protesters rallied against the country's military rulers. The protesters have been calling for a return to democratic rule. Protesters, hundreds of them, continue to stage protests and stage walks in this seventh month of their demonstration. Demonstrators marched in the Sudanese capital Khartoum amidst heavy security presence, including the U.S. sanctioned Central Reserve Police. 
which were deployed at key points along the protest route. Some threw tear gas canisters back towards security forces. They are back to the old tactics used by the regime of former President Omar al-Bashir, which is to attack protests at the meeting points before they move. But this will not stop us, and they know this. A military coup in October effectively ended a 2019 power-sharing deal between generals who overthrew President Omar al-Bashir and political parties that opposed him. One of those parties, the Sudanese Communist Party, said its leader, Mohamed Mukhtar al-Khatib, had been arrested on Thursday following a visit to Juba, where he met with leading Sudanese rebel leaders. The party, which has been the most hardline against the coup and any future deal, was pursuing a unified front against the coup. Protester Fati expressed concern about the military oppression. This oppression is irresponsible and not right, no matter what. Sudan's economy has spiraled as its government has gone without a prime minister since January. Businesses are stagnating while citizens face deep increase in the prices of food, electricity and fuel. Some health matters now. UNITAD celebrates its 15-year anniversary during the World Health Assembly, which runs from, the, uh, from May the 22nd to the 28th of May 2022. On the African continent, Kenya has been one of the quickest countries to produce and scale up first in-class life-saving technologies for HIV. In this country, where nearly 1.4 million people, including more than 80,000 children, are living with HIV, active steps have been taken over the past 15 years to facilitate the introduction of access to advanced medical technologies at affordable prices, making it possible to roll back the HIV epidemic. UNITED has been involved in pediatric HIV since its creation in 2006 from the scale-up of uh, early infant diagnosis of HIV, the introduction, which means the introduction of DNA PCR testing for children to identify children. It has also been involved in the development of pediatric uh, drugs, uh, reformulating new drugs uh, over the last 15 years. Children by their very nature grow very quickly and, and treatments need to be adapted for them. They need to be easy to consume. Now, UNITAID is, is perhaps the only global agency that's focused on ensuring that we can have this new treatment. Treatments, uh, the newest treatments adapted for children as early as possible. And, and, and not just uh, on the market side, but also in the scale-up in countries, working with government. There's a big difference between giving the children the Lopinava Ritonava tablet or syrup compared to the Dolutegrava tablet, 10 mg. Before the children had to take twice a day 
the Filipino will return over, they had to take in the morning and in the evening. If it's the syrup, it was not palatable. It was bitter. The taste would remain for several hours. But with BTG, they're only taking it once a day and it's not as bitter. It's very sweet. The World Health Organization says Mozambique uh, has declared a polio outbreak after detecting its first case of the virus in nearly three decades. That marks the second imported case of wild polio virus in southern Africa this year following an outbreak in Malawi in February. Polio invades the nervous system and can cause irreversible paralysis within hours. There is no cure for polio, but infection can be prevented through vaccination. WHO says the latest case was found in a child living in the northeastern Tete region who began experiencing the onset of paralysis towards the end of March. Consultant public health physician Dr. Doni Oguyemi joins us now on the program for discussions on this. Thank you, Doctor, for speaking to us. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with what's the implications of this case. Uh, what are the implications of the case found in Mozambique? It's the first of its kind in nearly three decades. Okay, so let's... Um go a bit into the historical perspective. Um, so the, the entire Africa, the last case was in Nigeria um, in 20, 2020. I'm sorry, 2016, it was, Nigeria was, you know, among the countries that were finally um, given the certificate of being polio-free. However, um, that means that Polio is no longer endemic in such countries, meaning that um, it's only perhaps you may have imported cases. So Africa as a whole has, you know, been free for the past almost five years now. So if we found this case in Mozambique, it's worrisome, um, but it does not make us lose that status of um, being declared polio-free. Now, there, there are two types that we could find. It's either we find the wild polio virus, which is very concerning, or we find the one that is a vaccine-derived, that's the circulating vaccine-derived polio virus. So in the case of the one in Mozambique, it was imported and it's been linked to um, coming from Malawi. And the one even in Malawi was linked to coming from Pakistan, so let's recall that there are still two countries that have not eradicated polio virus, that is Pakistan and Afghanistan in Asia. Being that as it may, it is troubling to have um, the virus coming into the country as an imported case because the spread can occur um, even without any symptoms. So what do we need to do um, as, a, as all countries? So we have never stopped advocating for routine immunization. So what we have to continue to do is to keep our infant immunization rate high. That means children under one year should continue to get their polio vaccines um, at birth, six weeks, 10 weeks, and uh, 14 weeks, that's four doses. But apart from that, we should continue to have our national immunization uh, days. And um, all of those 
times where we give children under five years uh, the polio vaccine, irrespective of their vaccination status. And I'm aware we're doing that um, in Nigeria, particularly in Lagos State, one just uh, took place. Also, we should continue active surveillance. By that, I mean let us keep checking for cases of acute flaccid paralysis or even loss in muscle tone in any child below 15 should be reported. Then environmentally, let us take two samples from the sewage, you know, even where there is two samples indiscriminately, such samples should be taken randomly and sent to the laboratory to check if there's a poliovirus there. And then from time to time, we should continue to do our mop-up campaigns. If we can keep the herd immunity high, that people that are immunized, even if you have an imported case, it's not likely to have um, enough strength to go from person to person. So we just have to um, continue everything we have been doing and never right. stop. Why I am a bit concerned is that um, where you have conflict situations or insecurity and health workers are unable to go to hard to reach areas, especially rural areas, then it becomes yes, it's, a problem. It's quite difficult to, to reach those people when there's their conflicts, yes. I'm so sorry to cut you short, Dr. Doing, but you've touched on, you know, other questions that I wanted to ask, but we have to take a break at this time. And also thank you, Dr. Doing Uguyemi, consultant, public health physician. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Fill ahead on the program. Our Africa Tech segment, uh, we see a Nigerian lecturer that builds a solar-powered electrical vehicle. Please stay with us. Welcome to our Africa Tech segment. 48-year-old Shinedu Umosu is a lecturer in the engineering department of the Federal Polytechnic Nekede Imo State, where he's built a solar-powered electrical vehicle. Shinedu says this achievement has been a dream of his for many years, but has finally come to reality. According to him, 70% of the materials used in producing the electrical car were local content. The Federal Polytechnic Nekede, located in Owe, West Local Government Area of Imo State. And this is where Chinedumosu works as a lecturer in the engineering department. The passion and dream of many years has finally come to reality for the 48 years old lecturer, whose skills and knowledge in mechanical engineering has finally resulted in the production of a solar powered electric vehicle. The new rector, uh, engineer doctor, Mike Arimawa has always been interested in uh, uh, the school going for alternative energy, alternative source of energy. One, to power the school. Two, to replace means of transportation in this place because what we are presently using now is causing a lot of harm to the environment. So I approached him, I told him about my dream. So he said, okay, form a team. And we formed a team and we approached him. He gave us a lot of support. Chinedu says about 70% of the materials used in producing the solar-powered electric vehicle were sourced locally, and he tells us more about how he was able to manufacture the car with such materials at his disposal. 
there are some basic materials you know that we have available here. Some few ones that are not available because of the scarcity, we were encouraged to look for alternatives locally. Because of that, we didn't go using the conventional uh, materials they use in making other motor cars. We used cow food and bamboo. We grinded this into powder and the same thing with the bamboo. Dried bamboo that is ready to be wasted and burnt. We grinded them, added some binders and casted this. We formed a mold that gave us this shape. A member of his team, Korea Vincent Ibabuchi, who worked on the electrical aspect of the car, also sheds more light on the production of the vehicle. We were able to develop a quick charge system for the electric vehicle, which uh, enables the vehicle to charge within 30 minutes once the battery is fully drained, because this is one of the major problems of electric vehicle, how to charge. If you are charging via the utility, you, are, you, you should be able to charge the battery in less than 30 minutes. Otherwise, the, the rate at which a regular, a regular combustion vehicle engine is fueled will have matched the performance of you trying to charge the vehicle. So in this particular context, we were able to design our own charging system, which delivers about 1.5 kilowatts power to the battery system. With the financial support given by the management of the Federal Polytechnic Nekade and Tetfond, Chinedu was able to produce his first solar-powered electric vehicle. Chinedu believes the solar-powered electric car will reduce the transportation challenges within the Nekade school community and help reduce the hazards faced in the course of moving from one point to another. Firefighters in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, have battled for about six hours uh, a fire that engulfed a market in the city overnight. Banadir Market is one of the biggest shopping areas in the city center and is close to the mayor's office. The fire center started in the early hours of Thursday and was not extinguished until after midnight. However, no one was killed in the blaze, uh, believed to have been caused by an electrical fault. Prime Minister Mohamed Hussein Rubble has expressed his sympathy on social media to the traders who have lost their properties and posted photos from the scene. Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni says talks with Kenyan presidential candidate Raila Odinga were touched on issues concerning the two neighboring countries after they met at State House in Entebbe. Mr. Odinga considered one of the front runners in the August 9th presidential elections had paid a courtesy call on President Museveni. In a tweet about meeting Mr. Odinga, he said both leaders walked down memory lane to discuss their shared history of their countries and their aim at forging stronger ties in the future. Two days ago, Mr. Odinga was in South Sudan where he met President Albert Kerr and commissioned the 3.6-kilometer Freedom Bridge that is expected to ease transportation of goods across the River Nile. However, a record 55 presidential candidates have been cleared now to contest in Kenya's election that will be coming up later this year.
And finally, on the program, have you ever imagined taking part in the hot air balloon sport? Well, let's meet Semakaleng Matebula, who is a South African first black hot air balloon pilot to shake up the exclusive sport. Take a look. 27-year-old Semakaleng Matebula is South Africa's first black hot air balloon pilot and one of few female pilots in the field. What used to feel like unattainable is now part of her weekly routine. Growing up, I had never seen a hot air balloon. There's no balloons flying over Harangua. Um, my interests were cooking, accounting. Um, at some point, I wanted to do media. But ballooning was not something that was in reach for me. Soon, buildings grew small and she was floating over rivers and farmlands as the sunrise, maneuvering the balloon and taking in the view against the yellow sky. Matabula found her way into ballooning by accident after struggling to find employment. She consulted a recruitment agency which helped her find a job as a marketing assistant at a hot air balloon tour company. She was smitten. Um, when I was introduced to the sport, it was this new and exciting field and when I found my feet I realized it goes beyond marketing. Um, you found me on the field trying to retrieve and crew with everyone else. You found me in the kitchen trying to make sure the guests are eating and they're all happy and then when the opportunity presented itself by the scholarship with the Department of Sport and Recreation and the Balloon and Airship Federation of South Africa, BAFSA, all the pilots put my name forward and I applied and here I was being a pilot. She started to learn about the sport and later got a scholarship to do her pilot training from the Department of Sport and Recreation and the Balloon and Airship Federation of South Africa. She earned her license last year. Coach Flip Stein believes more young people should be encouraged to take part in the sport. We really need new blood, you know, younger blood in the, in the, the sports thing. Because a bunch of us is growing old and uh, we need to get new people in. And this is why it's been nice to have people like Sema and some of the other kids that train now and busy training. You know, because it's new, it's not just new opportunities, it's new viewpoints and new aspirations and, and stuff like that. And we need to be able, I think years back, ballooning was a very exclusive club, whereas now it's becoming more open and open. Matabula also said she's keen to be an ambassador for the sport and hopes to bring in more youth and diversity. She will compete for the first time in the South African Hot Air Balloon Championship in June. It would be nice to take a ride in that hot air balloon. That's how we end the program today and for the week. Thank you so much for being a part of this. I'm Layo Olaridi. Bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was a series of reports uh, from the African continent on Burkina Faso, uh, Uganda, Rwanda, and uh, Tunisia, as well as other uh, countries. Uh, we'll take a quick break and come back uh, with our concluding segment for the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Today is Sunday, May 22nd, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. We'll be right back.
Jimi Hendrix with the tune entitled Room Full of Mirrors. And uh, right now we want to go back and examine further uh, the impact of uh, the U.S. uh, engineered uh, NATO war in Ukraine. And of course, uh, the recent announcement that uh, Finland and Sweden have applied uh, to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, which was founded by the United States in 1949. Uh, this is a report uh, from the world today on uh, how uh, the Russian Federation will respond uh, to this announcement uh, by Russia, uh, this announcement by Sweden and Finland. Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Putin said Sweden and Finland joining NATO poses no threat, but cautions that Russia would respond if military infrastructure is boistered in the two Nordic countries by the alliance. McDonald's is leaving Russia after decades of presence. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson renewed threats to break an agreement with the European Union over post-Brexit trading rules in Northern Ireland. 
You're listening to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Russian President Vladimir Putin said on Monday that Sweden and Finland joining NATO poses no threat, but cautioned that Russia would respond if military infrastructure is boistered in the two Nordic countries by the alliance. He made the remarks at a summit of the Collective Security Treaty Organization in Moscow. Putin added that the issue of NATO enlargement is largely artificial and is being used by the United States as a foreign policy tool. Both Finland and Sweden have announced the decisions to apply for NATO membership. Finland's president and the government's foreign policy committee took the official decision to start the application process for the country to become a NATO member on Sunday. Swedish Prime Minister Mudgalina Andersson announced on Monday the official decision to start the application process for the country to become a NATO member. Julia Chapman has more. Vladimir Putin says Russia has no problems with Finland and Sweden. He claims that NATO is an instrument of American foreign policy, suggesting that its expansion is a sign of Washington's influence. The Russian president says that there will be a response to the positioning of any NATO military infrastructure near its territory. As far as expansion, new members, Finland and Sweden included, Russia, I would like to remind you, dear colleagues, doesn't have any problem with those countries. Therefore, there's not an immediate threat to Russia with the inclusion of those countries. But the expansion of military infrastructure over that territory will obviously call for our response. And we will determine what that response is based on the threats created. Moscow has previously described NATO expansion as a threat to Russia, calling on the bloc to scale down its presence. Meeting with his fellow leaders of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, Putin said that the Russian-led military alliance would expand its own joint drills. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko urged his counterparts in the alliance to stand united against the West. Also on Monday, McDonald's announced that it is looking for a local buyer for its Russian assets. A statement from the company said that operating in Russia is no longer tenable and it expects to take a hit of more than a billion U.S. dollars by leaving. And French carmaker Renault has announced the sale of its assets to Russian state entities. The value of the deal has not been made public, but it's thought to have been a symbolic figure, uh, leaving Renault 2.3 billion U.S. dollars out of pocket. After several months of suspended operations, the announcement of two major departures suggests that foreign companies are giving up on the Russian market more permanently. Julia Chapman reporting from Moscow. Now, for more on this one, I'll join down the line by Joseph Sikusa, adjunct professor at Curtin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor, for talking to us again. My pleasure. Now, first up, uh, Professor, how do you view Putin's remarks in general? Oh, I thought they were um, very moderate, very measured. Uh, he didn't get overly excited and he didn't threaten anybody. Uh, I, I was uh, quite surprised at the relatively diplomatic language that he used. So, uh, you know, I, I think he did the right thing there. He certainly did not inflame expectations. 
He didn't threaten anybody. Uh, unless, of course, um, uh, NATO um, wants to bring advanced weapons systems to the borders of those countries, uh, and is the fin- Finnish border on Russia, or um, wants to create some kind of a threat there with uh, uh, with bases, etc. So uh, anyway, I thought his, his comments were very measured and diplomatic, suggesting to me that he's still looking for a way out of the Ukraine uh, war or whatever mm. we want to call it. Mm. Now, um, because he mentioned um, uh, these uh, military infrastructure uh, boistering um, as as a pretty condition of Russia's response to this, I mean, Professor, under what kind of condition do you predict Sweden and Finland will join NATO? Will you know? Will no military bases or buildups in the two Nordic countries' territories be one of those conditions? Well, I, I've seen in a number of places that. Um, uh, neither the Finns nor the Swedes want to have uh, major bases on their soil, and they certainly have made it very clear they do, do not want American nuclear weapons on their soil. So in that sense, um, they're trying to uh, try have it both ways. They're trying to have uh, hmm. an alliance, and they're trying uh, not to antagonize uh, Russia too much. But keep in mind something else. Uh, when Putin wakes up in the morning, he's facing uh, a NATO alliance of 30 countries. Mm. He's looking at about uh, 450, 500 million people. Uh, Sweden and Finland have a population combined of about 15 million. What's two more countries? So he wakes up and he's looking at 32 enemies <laughs> across mm. the border. Mm. I don't think he's too worried about this right now. Mm. But I think the, uh, the Finns and the Swedes, I think they panicked a little bit. You know, instead of joining an alliance, what they really want mm. is an insurance policy. You know, if you join an alliance, you put the um, you, you take the American nuclear weapons on your soil. You take any bases that the other allies want to put there. But uh, the Finns and the Swedes, they want it both ways. They want protection from the NATO comp- countries. At the same time, they do not want to overly antagonist, antagonize uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia. Mm. Well, it seems like a difficult decision, but uh, the tension is certainly being built up. Uh, Putin said NATO expansion is largely artificial and being used by the U.S. as a foreign policy tool. Here I quote, um, he said NATO is being used as a foreign policy instrument by one country, and this is being done quite persistently, skillfully, and very aggressively. How do you view these remarks? Well, I think they're pretty uh, pretty accurate and consistent. Uh, um, Putin has argued since 2007, in fact, people before him have argued, that um, NATO expansion was a um, uh, foreign policy aspect designed by the United States and some of its other allies to, um, uh, to well, hedge in uh, Russian uh, ambitions or the resurgence of another Soviet Union or what we call Russian revanchism. That is a tendency to claw back some of the territory they lost with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So in that sense, he sees um, NATO as, um, as, as a tool of the United States, uh, particularly as the United States doesn't want to talk about the real issue, and the real issue for Putin, setting aside the Ukraine war for a moment, mm. is the nuclear balance of power mm. in that part of the world. You know, when uh, the Soviets uh, brought missiles to Cuba 90 miles from the United States, uh, we nearly had a World War III, mm. and John Kennedy made it very clear that those weapons were uh, 
Uh, you know, they were too close to the United States. What Putin worries about, and there's an 833-mile border with Finland, what he's worried about is an advanced weapon system being placed on that border and the, um, say, uh, uh, short-range uh, nuclear weapon with mm-hmm. a, uh, a low yield on it could take out the Kremlin leadership or command and control uh, very quickly. And and what he's worried about is first strike, mm. you know. And, I mean, he's got his war to worry about, and that's the war that uh, uh, sort of lost its meaning there for a while. I mean, in the beginning, all Putin wanted was uh, uh, Ukrainian neutrality, which he's going to get one way or the other. Mm. And he wanted a promise from NATO uh, not to uh, have advanced weapons systems on the Ukraine border. So, in a way, you know, this war is... Uh, going to end the way it started with the same issues. Mm. Well, uh, Professor, how do you think these uh, two Nordic countries' decision to join NATO will impact the situation over the Ukraine crisis? I mean, if there's any influence at all. Uh, I don't think it's going to have much impact. You know, mm. what they're... Uh, 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 the president of Ukraine, of course, is encouraging this movement. Uh, whatever uh, weakens Russia, according to Ukrainian leadership, strengthens Ukrainian resolve or Ukrainian ability to bounce back. So mm. I don't think it's going to have any direct impact. I certainly don't see the Finns or the Swedes riding to the rescue of the Ukrainians. I mean, the Ukrainians are, are going to fight this one as long as they can until they have to sit down and sign a ceasefire, mm. and Putin will fight as long as he has to to get at the minimum what he wants, which is uh, certification of Crimea as Russian territory, the Donbass, and he's going to make uh, sure that uh, Ukraine doesn't join NATO. In fact, it, it takes about six months to a year to join NATO. You have to meet certain qualifications, hmm. and, and of course, the Finns and the um, and the Swedes have to meet the same qualifications. The, the interesting thing here to me is mm. is that it's this, it's the distance of the time between Sweden and Finland declaring they'd like to join NATO and when they actually become NATO partners. Mm. So there is a great fear that they might be attacked in the, in, in the interim, in the meantime. And so the United States and Britain has promised um, a sort of like a bridging security treaty mm-hmm. to uh, to Sweden and Finland uh, in, in the event that they were to be attacked by uh, Russia before they signed the, on the dotted line. Mm. Now, I, I think uh, Boris Johnson's agreeing to Finnish and um, Swedish security. I think it's a bit of a gamble because if Finland and Sweden are not actually members of NATO mm. and they are attacked and and Boris Johnson or America comes to their aid, that in effect trips the entire 30-country uh, uh, alliance treaty. Uh, Indeed. Uh, and, and so what we have here is we have all the things we try to, to avoid mm. in the First World War, and that is these ironclad alliances which become tripwires. Mm. This is exactly how we got involved in the First World War, is when all the alliances started tripping over each other. So I, I'm a little dubious about what this is supposed to achieve. Mm. And I, I think the Finns and the Swedes are a little cynical about this. They haven't helped out much in the past, but now that they're terrified... They want to cling on to NATO for all it's worth. So in a sense, um, uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of what they're going to achieve. As mm. I said, they, they want uh, an insurance policy. Mm. They don't really want to join an alliance. Well, 
This is certainly sounds very alarming.、Uh, now, Professor Turkish President Erdogan on Monday confirmed opposition to Sweden and Finland's bid, saying, "Here, quote, neither country has an open, clear stance against the terrorist organizations."、Uh, that was an apparent reference to Kurdish militant groups. How do you view Turkey's position, and how do you think, how do you predict things will move forward on this? Well,、uh, oddly enough,、uh, NATO requires. Uh, a, a consensus. That is,、Indeed. every nation in NATO has to sign on before any country can join. So any、mm-hmm. one of the 30 nations can stop Sweden or Finland. As a matter of fact, now、uh, President Erdogan looks at Sweden, and he doesn't like what he sees. He sees that、uh, Sweden has been a safe haven for uh, uh, organizations and individuals that he and Turkey regard as terrorist organizations that pose a real threat,、uh, and they they can't extradite people there for crimes or supposed crimes. In fact, he sees them as very uncooperative. And、uh, Erdogan,、uh, Erdogan, who is a, a very good horse trader, has decided to raise the issue right now. What he's saying <laughs> is that if Sweden wants to join this party, they're going to have to.、Uh, Uh, they're going to have to agree to a number of Turkish claims.、Hmm. People say this、uh, this could actually stop the whole thing. It might stop the whole thing, but、uh, Erdogan is using the、uh, the only leverage that he has, and that is if、uh, Sweden wants to come on board, it's going to have to pay attention to Turkish demands. That is, it cannot stand on human rights and those kinds of things. So、uh, I think、uh, President Erdogan has a legitimate grievance here. Mm. Which will have to be resolved before Sweden can think about signing on.、Mm. Indeed, it'll be interesting to see how you know Turkey will, what kind of role Turkey will play in when the actual voting is coming、um, in the way. Thank you, Professor. We just、uh, talked to Joseph Syracuse. He's adjunct professor at Curtin University in Australia. Coming up, we are going to take a look at McDonald's decision to pull out of、uh, Russia after decades of presence in the country. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. I am Alka Acharya. I teach at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in India. Today has、uh, organized its programs and、uh, its stress on、uh, bringing in a lot of views、uh, from all over. It is an extremely good platform for、uh, information and analysis, and I wish it all success in the future. You're listening to World Today. McDonald's is closing its business in Russia permanently after more than 30 years of operations in the country. The U.S. fast food company cites the Ukraine conflict and the unpredictable operating environment in Russia as its reasons for leaving. It says its continued ownership of the business in Russia is no longer tenable, nor is it consistent with McDonald's values. McDonald's has more than 800 restaurants and 62,000 employees in Russia. Other American brands, such as Starbucks and PepsiCo, have also announced that they would suspend the operations in the country. For more on this, my colleague Guanna earlier talked to Andrew Krabko, Moscow-based American political analyst. Andrew, how do you look at McDonald's exit from Russia?、Uh, is it a business decision or a political one, in your opinion? 
You know, in my personal opinion, I believe it's mostly a political decision. I think that from McDonald's perspective, it felt that this was uh, it was bad optics to remain in Russia, considering the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and the heavy government pressure on Western businesses to suspend, if not outright uh, pull out of their operations from Russia. I also think that McDonald's is concerned that anti-Russian activists in the U.S. might boycott their operations, do some negative PR campaigns, and perhaps the Western officials, including Ukrainian officials, would uh, publicly condemn them and therefore damage their brand. On the business side of things, I don't believe that had much of a factor behind the decision. I think that, theoretically speaking, there could have been concerns about sanctions or secondary sanctions impacting parts of their business, but I don't think that's a credible explanation. This seems to be almost entirely a political decision, not a business one. Mm-hmm. Either way, I think this was not an easy decision given the size of their business. Speaking of that, how will leaving the Russian market affect Russia and uh, McDonald's itself, in your opinion? Who has a greater impact from this? You know, I don't think this is going to affect (laughs) Russia at all because right now McDonald's is still paying the wages of the approximately 62,000 Russians that it employs at around its 850 restaurants. They're doing this per Russian law. If you suspend your operations in Russia, you are legally mandated to continue paying your employees. So they're not doing this to be a so-called good business. They legally have to do it. Otherwise, they could face, you know, potential fines, losses, and whatnot. Uh, they're uh, looking to sell, according to reports. Uh, what I read, they're going to take between $1.2 to $1.4 billion worth of losses. That'll be a tremendous blow to business. I also believe that if we look at what's going to come next, I mean, inevitably, somebody else is going to fill that real estate. McDonald's, being the oldest uh, U.S. fast food brand in Russia, has actually uh, – swept up a very prime real estate, especially here in the Russian capital where I live in Moscow. So these are very excellent locations, and another business is definitely going to fill it. So Russian consumers, the only thing that Russian consumers are going to face is the fact that they won't be able to eat at McDonald's again, but that's really not that big of a deal considering that McDonald's is about to lose over a billion dollars. I mean, if you compare the two, McDonald's is obviously getting the short end of the stick here, but it's McDonald's own fault. Tell us more about the responses from the local people. Uh, How do local people and media in Russia view the withdrawal of U.S. brands? Yeah, so in my personal impressions, uh, speaking to Russians and monitoring the media and everything, there are pretty much two schools of thought here. Some people are angry because they feel that they're being punished. They think it's unfair for innocent people, civilians that have nothing to do with political or military decision-making, to be deprived the right to purchase various products, whether it's McDonald's or any of the other Western companies that have suspended operations or pulled out of Russia. However, there are other people that really don't care. They either didn't go there that often or they almost feel like, you know what, I mean, it's better for a Russian brand to replace this Western brand. These are people that are very patriotic and just don't think it's right for these companies to even continue operating in Russia, considering the circumstances that they represent newly designated unfriendly countries. So I really think that altogether, no matter what anybody thinks, this Western perception that Russians are angry at their government because of this is completely wrong. I mean, I haven't come across any Russian on social media, in real life, or in the media that is talking about rioting in Red Square, for example, over McDonald's. I mean, this expectation that the West is trying to sell to its own people, that these sanctions and especially the withdrawal of prominent Western brands from Russia will lead to political instability is 100% fake news. There is no basis to it whatsoever.
The company cited the unpredictable operating environment in Russia as one of its reasons for leaving. With the severe sanctions against Russia from the U.S. government, what challenges does it pose to U.S. companies and the Western companies doing business in Russia? Okay, well, I'd like to specifically mention McDonald's, and I'll speak more broadly, real briefly.、Uh, as for McDonald's, reportedly they sourced about 80% of their supplies from the Russian domestic market. So,、uh, considering that, any、uh, direct or so-called secondary sanctions would not really affect its operations all that much, which is why I concluded this is mostly a political decision, not a business one. However, we need to keep in mind that shortly after the special military operation in Ukraine began, former Russian president and current、uh, deputy chairman of the National Security Council. Dmitry Medvedev, he warned that if the assets of Russian companies and especially Russian uh, uh, citizens in the West are seized by Western companies, or sorry, by Western governments, Russia will more than likely reciprocate by seizing Western assets and companies and whatnot. Now, that was a very strong signal that pretty much deterred the West from taking these types of actions against、uh, Russian citizens. I know that some、uh, big business representatives have had assets seized, but They don't represent the average person. Why this is important to bring up is because McDonald's and other companies might have feared that if their Western governments, who these companies have no influence over, were to initiate that sequence of events, their assets might inevitably suffer. And I think it was with that democracy sword hanging over their heads by their own Western governments that they decided to、uh, suspend operations or pull out of Russia out of fear that if their own government seized Russian assets and companies and whatnot. Well, their assets and companies are going to be nationalized by Russia in response. So I think that was actually the true economic factor here. I don't believe it had anything to do with、uh, Russia per se. Rather, the prerogative would rest in the hands of the Western governments themselves. Andrew, as you earlier mentioned, many American brands, including Starbucks, Coca-Cola, and Apple, have left Russia or suspended sales in the country. Then, to what extent will the withdrawal of American businesses or economic decoupling continue to affect Russian-American relations? Okay, if we look at Russian-American relations, pretty much they're frozen. I mean, they're almost worse than frozen. They're in a state of a very intense Cold War. However,、uh, what's very curious, and I'd like to mention this in connection with Russian-American relations, is a think tank called the Center for Research in Energy and Clean Air. It goes by the acronym CREA. They reported in late April that the U.S. was curiously enough still purchasing Russian oil. I know that sounds very crazy, but apparently it still is. And even even more so to the extent that Russia Russia has sold more oil to the United States in recent months since the special operation began than to India, in spite of the U.S. pressuring India to completely cut off its energy trade with Russia. So I find that very curious. I think it kind of goes to show that while there is some decoupling going on and it is very radical, the U.S. is still pursuing its own interests, nevertheless doing so at the expense of its so-called partners, including in the EU, who had pressured to cut off energy. Energy ties with Russia. Overall, the larger trend is that decoupling, whether between Russia and the United States, which never were really that coupled together to begin with, but more so between Russia and the European Union, it、um, it gets rid of this、uh, complex system of economic interdependence, specifically in the energy sphere. If we're looking at Russian-European relations, that had up until this point. Led to their relations being more or less manageable. The reason behind them being manageable is one side or the other thought that if they took unilateral action, their own economic interests could inevitably suffer. Since the U.S. has、uh, pressured its partners to decouple from Russia in ways that harm their own interests, 
I believe this will lead to more unpredictable policies from both Russia and the West because neither side feels that they have much to lose anymore. After all, they're already bearing the cost of this forced decoupling that the U.S. is uh, coercing its partners, rather, in this case, Russia considers the EU to be a vassal state of the U.S., to commence. So I think all in all, it's a very negative development. It bodes very negatively for the future of globalization. Having said that, the weakening of Western-led globalization will create opportunities for more non-Western globalization and therefore actually almost counterintuitively from America's perspective, accelerates the emerging multipolar world order. So there is a silver lining to this cloud, but the cloud might still bring some thunderstorms before the sun rises. Andrew Krugpol, Moscow-based American political analyst. This is World Today. Stay with us. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoyed the debates we had. And look forward to many more in the years to come. You're listening to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Officials of Shanghai, China, said the city has cut off community transmission of COVID-19 in all its 16 districts. A local health official said at a press conference that the megacity reported 77 confirmed locally transmitted COVID-19 cases and 746 locally asymptomatic cases on Monday. All the new cases were from areas under quarantine or closed-off management. According to this official, the city registered one COVID-19-related death on Monday. The deceased was a 92-year-old woman with underlying diseases. The city earlier announced a plan to gradually return to normalcy in June. For more on this one, I'm joined on the line by Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University in China. Thank you, Professor Yao, for talking to us again. Good evening, Liu Kun. Uh, good evening, indeed,、uh, Professor. So,、uh, how do you view the current situation in Shanghai in general? Um, I'm actually very pleased and feel very encouraging、mm. that after one and a half months of hardship in Shanghai,、uh, now the situation is、uh, basically brought under control. So most of the the Shanghai district is now、uh, had a, 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 you know zero contingency outside the quarantine area. This means that、um, uh, production activity and people's life. Can quickly、uh, resume to normality、mm. uh, because in the in the last one and a half months, I think people suffer、uh, from the isolation and、uh, economy activity.、Uh, you know, more or less was cut off and reduced、uh, significantly. Now,、uh, with the you know the the situation getting so much better, I think many parts of the Shanghai、uh, industry services. Uh, can be zoomed to、uh, the normal, and people's life can also、uh, gradually resume to normal. So it is very encouraging.、Mm. However, I I think there are still some other some cases, as you mentioned, in the quarantine area,、mm. and also in the in, you know in the in the isolated area. This means that there are measures have to be imposed to make sure that、uh, the diseases、uh, would not spread to the. To the society, to the community again.
Well, that certainly is the hope. I mean, Professor Shanghai announced a plan to gradually return to normalcy in June.、Uh, it said that、uh, you know this、uh, easing will take place basically、uh, from the beginning of June until the end of the, the month.、Uh, how do you look at the plan? Because、um, the Shanghai community,、uh, Shanghai municipal government, does.、Uh, I guess I leave them wiggle room, you know, to to control and manage、uh, the situation. But a month does sound a very long time for individuals, right? Well, I, I think people now started to have some sort of,、uh, you know, you know, free movement in the local、uh, community. If there's no cases, it's fine.、Mm. Uh, but for the whole city to be, you know, entirely open. Yes, it may take、uh, at least two or, two or three weeks、mm. uh, before the situation really get very clear.、Uh, without the situation being very clear, I think it's very difficult to open up the entire city、uh, mm. completely. But well, you know, localized localized freedom and localized movement, I think, is still、uh, possible. Yeah. Mm. Uh, then, Professor,、uh, about this plan, what do you think might be some of the challenges? Well, the the biggest challenge is to is to make sure that there's no、uh, major recurrence、mm. of the of the of the epidemic, and if there's any recurrence within Shanghai or, or some other major city, I think the damage,、uh, as demonstrated by the experience of Shanghai over the one and a half months, I think it's quite painful. So,、um, welcome back. And、uh, that was、uh, the world today, and、uh, we're going to be closing out our program、uh, for today.、Uh, the Pan African Journal, worldwide、uh, radio broadcast, and、uh, you've been listening to this program, which is broadcast live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And、uh, if you'd like to have access to this program,、uh, all you need to do is go、uh, to our website. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash、uh, Pan African Journal. That's、uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash、uh, Pan African Journal. You can have access to today's program、uh, for Sunday, May twenty second, twenty twenty two, as well as as well as over eleven hundred other archived editions of the Pan African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most Pressing and burning issues of the day. Just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with uh, the Charlie Parker Quintet、uh, in a live concert in Montreal,、uh, Quebec, uh, Canada,、uh, back in 1953. This is Abayomi Azikwe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Well, we have gathered、uh, what we consider、uh, as good a combination of musicians as we possibly can, in order to background the gentleman I suppose that most of us consider way up number one top man on alto sax, Charlie Parker.、Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> man, they've been waiting. We asked Bird about what he'd like to say. He says, "Man, I, I just don't talk. He says, 'I want to play How High the Moon.' So here it is."
Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.